1 Samuel chapter 7. In the words of the great theologian and actor, Will Smith, also known as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the greatest way to begin a story, he says, is to start with just a little bit of the end and then go back to the beginning. So I'm going to take his cinematic advice. We're going to start with a little bit of the end tonight. Go to verse 12. I want to thank Mike for stealing the content of verse 12 from me. That is not going to shorten the message. But, you know, it made me think, I, I, I am really glad that we have a preacher for a song leader. I want to ask God to keep, keep doing that for us because it's more than just music. Preachers get the depth of the lyric and the truth of it, and that just, it just kind of comes out naturally. Look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Now that's the end of the story that, that we're going to talk about tonight. And simply, here's what happened. Samuel took that stone. He called Ebenezer, which literally means stone of help. He set it in the ground so that all of Israel, both, both, both present and future, would know that the deliverance they just experienced out of the hand of the Philistines came only because God helped them. This stone, Ebenezer, was a spiritual marker of sorts. The reason why that they would do this in the Old Testament is because these memorials or, or these markers would inform them and would inform future generations of where God has brought them from and what God would take them to. Now, we know a little bit about markers, particularly physical markers in our society. We, we use them for the same purpose to point us to where we've been and where we're headed. For instance, some parents, I don't know if you do this, but I've been in, in many homes where, where the parents like to mark the physical height of their children as they grow up. So, so they pick a wall and every year they get that measuring stick out and take the little pencil and they mark it across the top of their head, write the date and write how old they were, maybe what grade they're in. And they'll do that every year as their kid gets taller. And kids love that because, because they love to track their progress. They like keeping track of how tall they're getting. Parents like it because they can always go back to those marks and remember what life was like when their kids were shorter and smaller and, and simpler in some ways. Those marks tell both where they've been and where they're going. If you're like me, you don't like to travel long distances. I'm not into that. If I have to travel long distances, I like doing it in a plane. But sometimes I have to drive. And you know what I'm looking for along the way? Those mile markers. Those signs that have the name of my destination and tell me how long I have to go and how far I've been. We have GPS now on our phone and it gives us our estimated time of arrival. And we're always trying to mark how far we have left to go. Those are physical markers. But like the children of Israel, we need spiritual markers in our lives. Listen, we need some Ebenezers that will remind us that the same God who helped us get this far will be the same God to help us go even further. I would say it this way, we need to be reminded often of what God has helped us with in the past so we can trust him in the present for what he will help us with in the future. I believe that. But having these Ebenezers in our life, listen, these spiritual markers, it's not just about us. It's not just so we can go back to the moments in time when God helped us in our past so then we know he will help us in our future. No doubt Ebenezer's build our faith, but it's also about generations that will come behind us. Listen, church, our children need to know that there were some times when God helped mom and dad. And if God could help mom and dad, he can help me too. 
Hey, the next generation of Fellowship Baptist Church needs to be able to see some Ebenezer's in this place. They need need to be able to hear stories and look back over some spiritual markers that represent miracles that God did in this church. Because listen, serving God in the future, if Jesus tarries his coming, it's going to be much harder than it is today. And it's hard today. And when our kids and their kids are leading this place and this ministry, they need to be able to see some reminders that, that, that tell them if God helped Fellowship Baptist Church yesterday, he can help this ministry today. But here's the thing. As awesome as Ebenezer's are for both us and for those coming behind us, they don't just appear out of nowhere. They're not free. You don't just get to make up a story and put a stone in the ground. Ebenezer's are earned. And that's the title of the message tonight. Earning Ebenezer's. The children of Israel had to do something. In order to activate the help of God in their life, there were steps that Samuel told them they had to make for their Ebenezer to be a reality. And the same thing is true for us. If we want some spiritual markers, some spiritual reminders, some stones that represent God's deliverance and God's good hand of help in our lives. If we want to be able to raise our Ebenezer like the song says, we're going to have to do what Samuel told the children of Israel they had to do. Now we're going to go back to the beginning of the story. Because if you remember from last week, the Israelites find themselves in a really bad spot. Pay attention now. Back in chapter 4, they got whooped by the Philistines and lost 30,000 men. In chapter 6, they got whooped by the holiness of God and they lost 50,070 men. At the center of both of those defeats was this sacred piece of furniture called the ark. And after losing 80,000 men as a result of misusing the ark, you know what they did? They decided to drop it off at a place called Kerjath Jerem. And it was there for 20 years. But not only did they park the ark there, they also forsook God and worshipped idols. the, The false gods of Balaam and Ashtaroth for 20 years. For two decades. Now let that sink in. That's a long time to live without the power and presence of God. The ark. That's a long time to be chasing after false gods. But eventually, because idolatry is always empty and it's always futile, the children of Israel, they started searching. Started searching for the real God again. Verse 1 and 2 say they cried out for God. They lamented after the Lord. Look at your Bible. And the men of kirjath Jerem came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in kirjath Jerem that this time was long, for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now I want you to pay close attention to something. At the end of verse 2, it says they lamented after the Lord. Go up to the previous chapter, chapter 6 and verse 19. Are you there? Say amen. Amen. And he smote the men of of, of Beshemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote the people, 50,000 and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented. Well, why? Because of the consequences. The Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. But you go down to the very last phrase of verse 2, and it's different. They didn't just lament the loss of life. They didn't lament the consequence of their sin. They lamented after the Lord. Hear me, church. There is a, a big difference from crying over our consequences and crying after our God. 
And when Samuel sensed that they were genuinely sorry and genuinely seeking the help of God in their life, he steps up as a good man of God would, and he gives them counsel. And he tells them how they can find God's help. He tells them what it will take to earn their Ebenezer. And that's the message for us tonight, two ways to get God's help and thus have spiritual markers in your life that will mark to you and others behind you that our God is a God of help. Number one, getting God's help requires repentance. Samuel, after he saw they were serious, this is the first thing he told them, verse three. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel. Here's what he said. If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and ask off from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. Let me tell you what this boils down to. Samuel told them that if they wanted deliverance from the Philistines, if they wanted the help and intervention of God in their life, they needed to demonstrate genuine repentance, which according to their example, and what I just read, if you're paying attention, is the combination of three things. Number one, confessing. Number two, forsaking. And number three, committing. It actually starts with, in this text, forsaking, then committing, then confessing. Now listen, church, they weren't going to get God's help just because they were sorry. God is not moved simply because we cry. Sorrow over our sin is appropriate, but not complete. Listen, Samuel didn't tell them, hey, come to an altar, pray for three or four minutes after I preach, and God will help you. You see, I think because of the way we structure our service and have for so many years and will continue to do so, singing, preaching, invitation, we come under this false pretense that a sincere response to the preached word at a public altar is what repentance looks like. But praying at an altar, though it's very important and meaningful, is just the beginning of repentance. It is not the end of repentance. Repentance is an ongoing, concrete active process. Samuel told them it starts this way. Forsake your idols. Their idols were Ashtaroth and the strange God called Balaam. Now pay close attention because this is where we draw our application. The worship of these two gods would assure two things. The fertility of both the womb. They were both gods of fertility. The, the, the fertility of both the womb and the field. The womb and the field were the two most important things to the Israelite economy. In order to be wealthy and successful and secure, they needed good crops and a big family. And these false gods offered that false security. So when Samuel was demanding the forsaking of idolatry, he was demanding this, the forsaking of anything other than God through which they found their security. Listen, God will not help us. He will not help you until he knows you're serious about forsaking all other forms of security in your life outside of him. And that's harder said than done because the other things that we tend to run to, the Asheroth and the Balaams in our life, they're more tangible. They're more visible than God seems to be sometimes. See, I found the most common form of help that I run to for security is often myself. It's called self-help. It's one of the largest sections in a bookstore. 
self-reliance, ingenuity, creativity, manipulation, persuasion, hard work, independence. And while all those things are okay in and of themselves, listen, they can become idols whenever they are trusted more than our God is trusted. Another form of help that we run to outside of God is other people. We run to our other relationships and we tell them our problems before we talk to God about it. We lean on them for comfort more than the Holy Spirit. We look to them for security more than we do the Lord because they're there and they're visible and they can audibly talk back to us. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit, man, he can be felt but not touched. The Bible can be read but not heard audibly in the sense that, that, that like a human voice can. The Lord will listen, but we can't see his eyes. We can't feel his embrace like we can a parent, a sibling, a co-worker, a best friend, or a spouse. Listen, that is why the people of God would have found it very difficult to forsake their gods because it required less faith to worship Balaam and Ashtoreth. They could touch those gods. But the point is God will not respond to our cry for help until we by faith have forsaken every tangible and visible little G God in our life that we're leaning on for help more than him. Samuel didn't stop with forsaking though because it's not just about getting rid of the wrong things. It's about committing to the right things. He told them at the end of verse number uh, three, you need to serve God only. In other words, repentance involves forsaking, but it also involves committing the, the, the word repent listen it literally means to turn the idea is that you're turning from something to something else and that's exactly what the Israelites did did you notice verse 4 then after they were told what to do the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only now I'm thinking in, in, in the footsteps of a preacher brother said this had to fire Samuel up in a good way they didn't just say, amen, preacher, that's good. They were doers of the word. They followed it up with committed action. And if you study Bible history, it will tell you how serious they were about putting away idolatry. This wasn't merely a one-time thing at an altar in effort to get God to bail them out. No, Baalism is put away here in this text and does not return for another 200 years until the days of Ahab. They were serious about getting right with God. They were truly committing themselves to God. And God only, man, that's every preacher's dream. Man, we don't just want an attaboy after we preach. We, we don't just want full altars. We don't just want loud amens. I love that all, but you know what I desire? Action. And it's not that I just desire it. Listen, God expects it. Too many people feign repentance. They don't want long-term commitment. All they want is a bailout from God. Their sin has left them feeling empty and searching and hurting. And when they get low enough, they run back to God. And yes, they lament, but it's only because they want rescue, not because they're truly repenting. We've seen this in our nation at large, have we not? September 11, 2011, our nation was awakened to our desperate need of God. And just days after we were attacked, what could you hear being sung in every professional baseball stadium? God bless America. Land that I love. And people would respectfully take off their hats because they were genuinely moved by that song. And they were genuinely sensing their need of God. But there was no commitment because right after their song was over, I could see it with my mind's eye right now. Everybody put their hats back on their heads. They picked up their beers and they carried on with the game. 
You can't mix God into your life as an accessory and expect him to be your helper. Just because you include his name in a song doesn't show that you're committed to him. Put down your beer. Get yourself in God's house. Make him the center of your life. That's commitment. That moves the helping hand of God in the nation. You would think we had learned we didn't because COVID-19 has sent our world and our nation into a pandemic and our, it's wrecked our economy, at least temporarily. We can talk about all the reasons why, but the truth is the truth. Many people have gotten sick. It's killed some of our most vulnerable. Certainly our nation at large right now has been awakened. If not just for the need of the fact that we need to get our act together, we're at least awakened, at least the Christians are, to our need for God in this time. But I'm afraid that too many Christians are crying out to God for help in one sentence, yet crying out to other sources in the next. We commit to God in prayer. But we're more getting into other sources for our security. We say, God, help us, but government, save us. God, help us, scientists, save us. God, help us, vaccinines, save us. God, help us, stimulus checks, save us. God, help us, Supreme Court justice, save us. I don't care who gets in the White House or who gets confirmed as justice or whether the vaccination comes out in three months or in three years. Would to God we would look to heaven during this time and say this, God alone is our helper. We must stop faking repentance. We must stop pretending to forsake and pretending to commit and pretending to, 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 to totally rid ourselves of our sins. Would to God it be said to the people of Fellowship Baptist Church, they did put away their idols and serve the Lord only. Verse 6 says that it didn't even stop with forsaking, committing. It goes on because... They symbolically drew water, poured it out before the Lord, fasted on that day to show their, their, their seriousness to God and their sorrow for their sin. And they confessed. They said, we have sinned against the Lord. Listen to me. There is no minimizing. There is no justifying. There is no denying. There is no hiding. There was simple honesty before God. And that really wraps up what it looks like to repent. You confess your sin for what it is. You forsake your sin and you commit to God and God alone. And I want you to catch this. This isn't a one-time thing. Repentance isn't this. You get yourself in trouble. You make a dumb mistake enough times in a row. So you come to church, you find an altar, you feel better about yourself. And then you go back out there until you repeat the same thing. You come back to church and get right. Then you go out and come back to church and get right. I'm glad that church is a place where you can get right. But, but, but listen, repentance isn't a weekly rhythm of the Christian's life. It is a daily rhythm of the Christian's life. It's not an every once in a while, whenever you sin really bad, it is every sin, big and small. Repentance is the daily disposition and discipline of the growing Christian. Do you want God's help in your life? Do you want God's deliverance in your life? Do you want an Ebenezer in your life? Then get serious about living a daily life of repentance, confessing, forsaking, and committing. Number two, getting God's help requires dependence. The children of Israel were gathered together for worship. It was at that point the Philistines thought it was prime time to attack. And this is a side note, very sub point, but it's a point that's worth being made that just because you're getting right with God doesn't mean your enemy will run away. Satan often attacks right on the heels of repentance and revival. Look at verse 7. 
And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together in Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now, it makes sense they were afraid, didn't it? They got, I mean, the Philistines just whooped them. Okay, they lost 30,000 of their men to the Philistines. Yet, what did they do? Remember, look up here. Let me talk to you for a second. What did they do in chapter 4? What did they do? They, they used the ark as a form of manipulation. When Brother Tanner preached that, he said they used the ark as a cheat code, as a rabbit's foot, a lucky charm. And, they, and, 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 and whenever they lost to the Philistines or, or, or got, 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 got defeated by the Philistines, they said, okay, we'll just get the ark and we'll go whoop them this time. And it just wasn't the case because you can't manipulate God. But they didn't go to their own manipulation. They didn't go to their own creativity, ingenuity, and even hard work or preparation. You know what they went to? They went to prayer. Look at verse number eight. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. How do you know when you're dependent upon God like you should be, Listen closely, when prayer is your first resort and not your last. When the first thing you can, you can even think to do upon encountering a Philistine in your life is pray. But we are more often like the Israelites of chapter 4. We resort to helping ourselves. You see, we got to work harder. And we got to work smarter and we got to show more creativity, ingenuity, manipulation and pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and perform mind over matter. We've got to power up. We got to get the ark in the right place. We've got to get our act together. We got to do, 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 do. Never mind a humble posture of prayer. We don't have time for that. The situation we're in calls for the immediate arm of the flesh to take action. So you know what we do? We talk to ourselves first. Then we talk to our spouse next. Then a best friend then our pastor, then our social media peeps. Then we start the cycle all over again the next day. Ourself, our spouse, our friend, our pastor, social media, and we start it all over. It's not that we don't think about prayer. We think prayers all day long. We just never stop to completely resort to prayer. You're not dependent upon God like you should be until the most natural thing for you to do is stop and pray. Is that your default response to the Philistines in your life? I'm not saying there's not a place for human effort, creativity, and hard work and ingenuity. I firmly believe that after you pray, you should immediately pick up a shovel and do your part. I'm a firm believer that divine intervention always partners with human effort. And I also believe there's power in community. There's something to be said of being able to talk to your spouse, being able to talk to a pastor, being able to talk to a friend, or like David did so often, just talk to yourself. But my point tonight is that a clear indicator of dependence upon God is when human effort and human interaction only take place after prayer. I want to invite you to our Wednesday night service. That's what it's all about. Praying through. You know what the Bible says in the New Testament? Ye have not because ye ask not. Listen, please. I truly believe that one of the most fundamental reasons for God's people not receiving God's help is because they simply don't ask for it. They think about it. They talk about it. 
They type about it. They text about it. But they don't have the faith and the desperation and the dependence upon God to clear off a spot and pray and ask for it. I want our church to get a hold of this idea of prayer. It's a burden of mine right now. I want us to be a praying people. I don't want the only time you pray is when you come to church or when you pray for a meal. I want it to be a default response of your life, a natural rhythm of your life, a step-by-step, moment-by-moment conversation with your God. I want you to pray when you get up, and I want you to pray when you eat breakfast, and I want you to pray when you drive to work, and I want you to pray when you get to work, and I want you to pray when you take your lunch break, and I want you to pray when you go back to work, and I want you to pray when you work out, and I want you to pray when you're hanging out with your family, and I want you to pray before you go to bed. I want you to learn how to live a life of continual dependence upon God. That's the kind of Christian that God loves to help. He understands that we are consistently in a posture of prayer. In a posture of of dependence. But, But I'm telling you, it shocks me, and it shouldn't, but it shocks me how many Christians do not pray every day. No prayer list. No prayer closet. No daily communion with God. If they try, they get distracted in the first 30 seconds. And we end up defaulting to this as the reason. It's a discipline problem. And that might have something to do with it. But if you don't pray on a daily basis, it's not primarily a discipline problem. It is a dependence problem. It is a desperation problem. You see, when you're truly desperate, you pray. When a family member's sick, you pray. When you have a surgery, you pray. When you're broke as a joke, you pray. When you have something you can't overcome, you pray. But, 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 but when none of those things are calling for desperate prayer, you aren't desperate. Forget the fact that you've got to come and minister at children's church. That's not desperate enough to pray for. Forget the fact that we're coming for corporate worship and Sunday worship's a Saturday decision, but we're not desperate enough to pray for it. Forget that you hear a prayer request in your fellowship Bible class that has nothing to do with you. But you're not desperate enough on their behalf to bear their burdens with them. You see, our prayer life, let's just be honest, it's shallow. It's weak. It's distracted. We know nothing about prayer. All we know is little snippets of talking to God here and there, but we know nothing of getting on our knees and crying desperately for God. As a rhythm of our life, we fit it into our life. We fit it in. I want to know where are the prayer warriors in 2020? The prayer warriors that we read about, like Samuel. The prayer warriors that we read about, like David. The prayer warriors that we read about, like Daniel. He said, you know what, you can tell me not to pray, but I'm going to risk my freedom and my very life to pray three times a day. Where are those prayer warriors? I'll tell you the problem. It is a dependence problem. Our lives are too easy. They're too comfortable. And we aren't daily dependent on the Lord. We're not desperate until He shakes us up enough to be desperate. It shouldn't take a funeral. It shouldn't take cancer. 
It shouldn't take any number of those things. A broken relationship, a betrayal, an affair, a lost job. It shouldn't take any of those things to bring us to our knees. It should take the fact that we are getting up on this day and we have a very real enemy called the devil who is walking about seeking who may devour. And you may not be broke and life may be going good and marriage is great and kids are healthy, but there is a devil that wants to attack you and he's a lot meaner than the Philistines are and you should be desperately on your knees every day. God, help our church. Help our church to be a church of prayer. Help us, God. I think I saw Laura post something on Facebook that meant a lot to me. She talked about that, that, that it's not about propping your pastor up on a pedestal. And I agree with that. Because pastors fall. Especially when they're propped up. It's not about being propping up your pastor. It's about praying for your pastor. The best thing you can do for me, the best thing you can do for those leaders that God has gifted our church with is not prop us up. It's to pray for us. We might never know. We might never know the work you do for us on your knees in your prayer closet. But God knows and God hears. And God will use your prayer for your spiritual leaders to accomplish great things, honestly. Yeah. Israel got God's help. Because they were repentant and dependent. As a pastor of this church, let me say this first. Right after they did that, God helped them. He thundered, it says in the text. It's amazing. You know, God often worked through Mother Nature. He, he does that. It's all through Scripture. And what he did is he, he caused a great storm to hit, hit the Philistines as they were going up the hill of Mizpah, if you can imagine it. They're worshiping on the hill of Mizpah and they're going up. They, they thought that's prime time to invade them. And so God thundered. He roared down a, a, a thunderstorm. And what it did was it, it split their, their battle lines in half. It discomfited them, the text says. It separated them. It put them in array. And now they were the most vulnerable now. And Israel was now able to chase them down the hill. It was amazing what God did. It's an awesome turn of events. And then Samuel, after he saw that, he said, nobody go anywhere. Let's get us a stone. And he put a stone in the ground and said, this sucker's called Ebenezer because God is our help. Now, here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say. As a pastor, my heart is so thankful to those in this church who have, through their life of faith in God, earned some Ebenezers. No, no, no. I, I want to thank God. For a generation of church members that have stories to tell about how God has helped this church. And God has used this church. The very building we worship in today, hey, it's an Ebenezer. You get that? It is a spiritual marker that will serve as a monument to future generations of what God can do when a church gives sacrificially. When a church works sacrificially. When a church loves people and reaches people right where they are. No, listen, there are generations coming behind us. They didn't touch a shovel to get into this building. They didn't give a dime to get into this building. But they're going to enjoy this building. And we can use this as a gigantic 70,000 square foot stone to tell them, hey, we got a whole field back there. And if God wants to keep enlarging our coast, somebody else, another generation is going to have to pick up a shovel. 
Now it's going to be another pastor too, but um, somebody else is going to have to do some work. Somebody else is going to have to sacrifice time in an adult fellowship Bible class to go teach children. Somebody's going to have to use their giftedness in a sacrificial way to reach people for Christ. Some people are, are going to have to learn how to tithe on a regular basis. And learn how to get a faith promise on a regular basis. And there are going to be moments in which they don't feel like doing that. And they need to be able to look back to a generation of people in our church. And they can. That have some Ebenezer stones of faithfulness and dependence on God. And repentance to God. And God has helped them. They need those. So thank you. Thank you if you're part of that generation. That through your life of repentance and dependence you have some Ebenezer's. If you're a parent in here tonight, are you earning Ebenezer's? Are you demonstrating a life of repentance and dependence in order to see God's deliverance and help in your life? Parents, please listen, especially if you have young kids. When your kids turn 18, you can't just make up stories to somehow change their mind and get them to love Jesus. You can't just go get a stone, paint your own Ebenezer and plant it in the ground and make up stuff. Hello. When they get 18, you're not going to be able just to tell them what to do from your mouth. They're going to need to have seen it from your life for 18 years. Do you have marked victories, mom and dad, that God has won stories of deliverance and provision and grace and help that you can tell your kids? Do you have any of those Ebenezer's in your life? Then what in the world do you expect? How do you expect to inspire them to live your faith if they never see your faith? All they hear is get in the car, we're going to church. That's all they hear. They don't hear any kind of different language or music when you're coming to church. You get in here, mom and dad are fighting. You get back and you come in here and act like everything okay, of course. You get back in, in the minivan, you start fighting again. Fighting about why, why didn't you tithe today? Well, I didn't, I didn't think we should. I mean, we're going to make it up. Well, we need to tithe. Everything. And they're hearing all these stories, feign faith. Are you following me? I'm not trying to meddle. I'm trying to be real tonight. We have parents that are hoping that somehow they can miraculously erect their own Ebenezer when their kid gets 18 and convince them to love God all of a sudden. No, you start earning Ebenezer's when they're one years old. And when they're three years old and five years old and eight years old and 11 years old. That way they can see Ebenezer's in your life, uh, uh, moments of repentance and moments of dependence and moments of deliverance where God came through in your life. If you aren't working for Ebenezer's right now, you will not have a story to tell them. We will not have a future of this church. We will have kids that saw hypocrites and saw inconsistency. And they will walk outside of those doors the first moment they don't have to come. God, help us parents to place ourselves in daily positions of repentance and faith and dependence so our kids and our grandkids will, will be able to point to our Ebenezer's and say, I want what they have. And Mike said it, and it's true. The greatest Ebenezer anyone can have in their life is their salvation. 
Now, the greatest honor, listen, for any of us is to be able to go back to a place, a spiritual marker, a monument, an Ebenezer that represents the day God saved our soul. We have never been more helped from God than the day he saved us from our sins. I know it's Sunday night. I know it's the cream of the crop. But I'm just going to ask you, do you know you're saved? Do you know? Children, listen to me. Teenagers, listen to me. Know you're saved. Kids, do you know you're saved? Some of you are six and seven and eight and nine. And it's about that time when you start understanding that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And he died to save you from your sin. And he was buried and he rose again. That's the gospel. If you're, if you're a child, listen, that's the gospel. He wants to save your soul. Are you saved? Adult, are you saved? If you're to die today, you know for sure you go to heaven. Have you placed your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross for your sins? Have you? You can play the Christian life and try to erect these fake Ebenezers and go through the motions. But boy, if it isn't in here, you don't got the Ebenezer that matters. Yeah. How do we get God's help? We live a daily life of repentance. Confessing, forsaking, committing. Not just when we get in big trouble, but every day. And we live a daily life of dependence where our first response to any Philistine is prayer. Would you stand with every head bowed and every eye closed?